That's the problem with baking technologies of surveillance. They're always done for a really good reason, and they're never dismantled. And as soon as uh, you know the, the emergency ends, creative and hardworking people will use it to solve other problems. And half those problems will think are amazing and laudable and isn't the world better because of them. And half those will be problematic and concerning and lead to bad places. And then once in a blue moon, they'll come up with a use that's just evil. Hello, and welcome to Between Two Codes, a podcast where law students talk to the experts at Georgetown Law about the intersection of law and technology. I'm your host for today's episode, Panya Gupta, and we're glad to have you join us. Between Two Codes is brought to you by the Institute of Technology, Law, and Policy at the Georgetown University Law Center. The Institute is training the next generation of lawyers and lawmakers with deep expertise in technology, law, and policy. You can find the many events that the Institute does at georgetowntech.org. Before we get started, we'd love for you all to subscribe and rate us on your podcast app of choice and follow us at Between Two Codes on Twitter and Instagram. We have a lot more great episodes coming down the line and you will not want to miss them. This week on Between Two Codes, we have Paul Ohm, Professor and Associate Dean at Georgetown Law. Dean Ohm specializes in information privacy, computer crime law, intellectual property, and criminal procedure. He has worked heavily on issues of privacy and joins us today to talk about the use of technology before, during, and after the COVID-19 pandemic at Georgetown Law. As a heads up, this episode briefly discusses Georgetown Law's policies around recording classes, both in-person and virtual, with Dean Ohm. Although released recently, we interviewed Dean Ohm and recorded this episode prior to an incident at Georgetown related to classroom recordings. All right. Thank you so much, Dean Ohm, for joining us today, and welcome to Between Two Codes. We're really excited to have you here. Oh, it's really a pleasure. Congratulations on the new podcast. I'm glad to be part of it. Um, We're really appreciative of your interest in coming and speaking with us, and we wanted to hear a bit about your uh, thinking around technology usage at Georgetown and how that Uh, plays into larger themes about technology. And I want to start by talking about something you mentioned as a guiding principle of yours. Technology follows policy. Technology doesn't dictate policy, except when it does. Can you explain that further and talk about how it has guided your thinking both at Georgetown and beyond? Yeah, and I think the important context for this conversation is you know, I've been a, a technology law scholar for 15 years, um, and only in the last five years have I been a law school administrator as well. Uh, so I'm the associate dean for academic affairs. It means I run the curriculum and I figure out who teaches what. But in the middle of the pandemic, and even before the pandemic, I realized that my kind of prior thought as a technology law scholar had to be brought to bear in the decisions I was making. Um, it had to because I couldn't help myself. I am who I am. But more importantly, like everything we do resonates with what I've been writing about. And, you know, I'm a critic of Facebook and of Google and of Twitter and Apple and all of the other giant tech companies who, you know, my core thesis is really boring and straightforward. The world is broken and tech companies are largely to blame. But now I'd put my money where my mouth is. Like I run a tiny little nonprofit organization with thousands of students and hundreds of professors. And we use technology a lot. 
and we had to use technology a lot in the uh, in the pandemic. So let's go back to this thing, which I call my my mantra. Right. Whenever my staff would come to me and I have a staff of around 30 employees, the registrar's office, the office of academic affairs, more than I would have believed, they would have said, okay, the, the database we purchased 10 years ago does X. And because of that student Y who wants to do something, we just can't do it. And whenever that happened, I would say, no, the technology cannot drive the policy, the policy has to drive the technology. And what that sometimes meant was we need to change the technology, which is expensive, disruptive, hard for the staff to do sometimes. And so, you know, I, I kind of said that repeatedly. I've probably said that 20 times since I've become associate dean. But I have that little caveat at the end, except when it doesn't. And that's that's a tip of the hat to the reality that sometimes technology really does tie your hands and it defines what's <clears throat> impossible, possible, expensive, not expensive, et cetera. So there's a lot there, but that's the that's my mantra. And I've tried to apply it since I've become associate dean, including during the pandemic. So speaking of the pandemic, um, you know, we've seen a lot more of our reliance on technology, both at Georgetown and at a wider societal level. Technology is how we've stayed connected to one another when we can't be connected physically. It's how we've continued um, schooling, businesses, a lot of different functions that previously were not considered well-suited to technology usage to the degree they are now. How did the administration and how did you think about technology usage at the start of the pandemic? And what did you anticipate or think the school needed to focus on? I mean, you're right. The, the pandemic has been this uh, insane laboratory for kind of embracing technology and and barreling right past prior reasons why we wouldn't adopt some technologies. We had no choice. You know, I think it's important to say at the outset that I don't want this focus on technology to to distract from what's really important about the pandemic, right? People are suffering, people have died. Um, and so in the kind of comparison to that, the kind of things I worry about are, are pretty petty and small in comparison. Um, but, you know, we, we didn't have a choice. It's almost the one year anniversary right now to the day we decided to move everything online. Um, we made that decision over spring break and it was something that was so difficult and jarring to, to consider. Um, we had to take hundreds and hundreds of classes. We had to take hundreds of professors who had never once in their life used Zoom. And we had to kind of say, this is now how you do it. You are going to adapt to this new reality. Uh, and we had to do that in an environment where people were sick and where family members were sick and where People were having trouble getting back in the country. Um, and so, you know, the, the role technology played is one that will be chronicled for decades. Uh, and, and actually, it's one that I want to build into my scholarship. I'm really starting to think in a kind of retrospective way, right? I said I was a scholar before associate dean. I'm going to be a scholar after I'm associate dean because it's only a temporary job here. Um, and so I'm beginning to think about the choices we made during the pandemic and you know, whether or not we made the right choices 
And whether or not this says something bigger about, you know, how Facebook came to be Facebook and how Amazon came to be Amazon, because at one point in their lives, they were a scrappy startup, just like we were all scrappy startups in March of 2020. So, so what I'd love to do is just go into lots of specific examples, but that's, that's the overall idea. So I would love to hear a bit more about these examples. Um, but before we dive deep into the examples, I'm curious if there were any technology decisions that were made prior to the pandemic, um, what, you know, prior to any thinking about the pandemic that ultimately impacted the decisions that were made when the pandemic started and when you were in the scrappy startup phase at Georgetown. Yeah, I mean, right. So, so one of the big enduring lessons of the pandemic is um, I, this is probably an offensive phrase, but you come to the dance with who brought you. Okay, I guess it's not offensive. But anyway, right, you um, you start from the raw materials you have to work with. And and technologically, that means you, you look at your current pre-existing platforms. You look at what they do well, what they don't do well. And more importantly, you don't have time in an emergency to set up new platforms. And so I think every university in America, in the world, every law school in America, um, their story technologically is the story of, okay, what did we do beforehand? And in, in that way, I think Georgetown's going to turn out to be pretty unusual. Georgetown for about four or five years had been embracing video recordings of classroom discussions, probably more than any law school in America. I don't think that fact has ever been written down or said aloud. So here I am, I'm airing this fact for the first time. Um, and, and, you know, we could do an entire hour on why that is. What were the kind of historical quirks? What role did student advocacy play in bringing that about? But at Georgetown, we had a video camera in every single classroom. We had a stack of computers in the corner recording every single class. And we had a system where professors in each class were asked to um, opt out, not opt in, opt out of recording and there's a long, long uh, bit of scholarship in law and in other fields that says opt-outs are destiny, that um, if you create an opt-out, then the default choice tends to be really sticky. That in this example, even if you're a professor who hates the idea of your classes being recorded, it's just hard to say no to something when the default is yes, especially when your students really want it. Um, and so... That means that we had a lot of classes that were recorded. We had a student body that was used to the idea that classes were available after the fact. It was never 100%. It probably wasn't even over 70%. I don't know the exact number pre-pandemic. But that gave us something that no other law school in America had, right? This kind of both technological infrastructure for making recordings available after the fact and the culture to adopt and accept something like that. I should be clear because again, I don't think we've talked about this publicly. We didn't record clinics. We didn't record some tiny classes. So we were mindful of special hypersensitivities of this little surveillance system we set up. I should also come clean and say, I didn't love our surveillance system. It was too much surveillance. I'm a surveillance scholar. Um, and I've studied for a long time how people are chilled when they know that a camera is watching. This is obviously um, well-trodden ground. Some call it the panopticon. I think one of the great ironies of our, of our entire story is that the company we hired to do this is called Panopto. I had 
I had hilarious conversations with the IT director before the pandemic where I said, you should tell that company that is the stupidest name they could possibly have picked. And yet, and I think he passed along the note, but clearly the company didn't let me rebrand them. So today we use a system. Or a very I, accurate name. Yeah, I guess that's right. I mean, maybe it's honest. Maybe I should be celebrating their honesty <laughs> instead of criticizing their ineptitude. But uh, it's a dumb name and it's our system. So we have we have a literal panopticon at Georgetown Law, and it's one that we didn't build for the pandemic. We, we inherited it for the pandemic. And then just to close out the thought, it helped us during the pandemic. It helped us that we had this rack of servers in every classroom that were really good at recording things. And so we made a lot of design design decisions that other law schools couldn't make that were all geared toward that little rack of computers in the corner. So. And for context, the classroom recording systems helped both with synchronous and asynchronous classes and providing classes at the virtual level um, to, to enable students all across the country and all across the world to still continue attending. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Georgetown, I think, has m more students who come to us from abroad um, than probably any other law school in the country. And I'll remind what everyone remembers, which is, you know, the pandemic coincided with really kind of draconian announcements from the Trump administration about visas and about students studying, um, you know, from overseas. This affected the the fall semester more than the spring, if, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and so we were, you know, we had hundreds of students studying from China and South Korea and Australian parts of Europe, um, where it was the middle of the night when most of their classes met. And so the fact that we have this really sophisticated um, recording system, and let me let me just do a digression that maybe it's too deep in the weeds um, for a podcast. This also meant that because we had a pre-recorded system, we didn't need professors to hit the record button themselves. That's a huge benefit. I've heard from not only other universities, I've heard from Georgetown's main campus that the one persistent problem was some professors would forget to hit the record button. And so this is what I've been studying as a tech scholar forever that, that, you know, there's this fancy word that scholars use affordances, meaning what does technology in its configuration in its user interface, what does it make easy and what does it make really hard? And it turns out what it makes easy gets done and what it makes it hard, what it makes hard doesn't get done. So in our system, we had this like wonderful affordance for recording with very little intervention which made recording easier, which helped all these students in China, like you just said. But at the same time, I mean, this is again, what I've been studying for decades. At the same time, it meant I couldn't let a professor just set up their own Zoom account. I, they had to use my Zoom links. Um, I, I, I love that I call them mine. I feel like a, you know, a, a father with these things. Um, and that drove a hundred other decisions that students probably experience, but didn't understand why it was true, right? So it meant that in the spring, professors couldn't launch their own breakout rooms because they had to use our Zoom accounts. And if we gave them what they call host rights and they hit the wrong button, they would, they would screw up recordings for the next 10 classes. It meant that professors couldn't run their class over by 45 minutes, which students probably really loved because another professor would appear at that link 15 minutes later, um, 
But at the same time, it meant that professors couldn't also hang out for office hours afterwards using the same link. So there's one tiny little institutional technological decision made for completely different reasons changed the entire course of our technological capability, um, largely for our benefit, but also it created friction, it created frustration. And, and then here's the big sweeping theme. It centralized what we did at Georgetown. It meant Paul Ohm and George Patasis are the head of our IT department. We were kind of in charge of this centralized architecture. We weren't, it wasn't a laissez-faire, let every professor do what they wanted. And I'm sure that had knock-on effects that even I haven't, you know, really come to appreciate yet. You know, from a student's perspective, that background is so interesting to hear. And I'm curious to hear more about these types of decisions. And I know there are some really interesting ones that you've made related to QR codes, for example. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how those have been used and thinking around that? Yeah. And, and again, I'm hoping to write an article about this, but, but it's, you know, I focused so far in this, in this conversation about technology and how technology decisions are made and how they affect kind of important human interactions. But of course, the really interesting overlay is public health, right? So, so in this pandemic, we've all had to become amateur public health experts. Every one of us, I don't just mean administrators. Um, And all of our decision-making is driven by what the CDC says, by what university public health experts say. And so we quickly came to understand that um, one thing public health really needed was contact tracing, right? So if someone were, was in our building and if someone was ill, um, we would have to then figure out who else was in the area within six feet, perhaps without a mask. Um, and, you know, contact tracing and the technological uh, facilities that enable it is something that a lot of people have commented on. But here's our own little micro version of that story. So early on, we wanted to have, uh, as only one example, hybrid classes. We wanted to have classes where students came back in, but they'd wear masks and they'd be socially distant. And the one question is, if a student ever appeared uh, and then later found out that they were positive for COVID, how would we find out who was within six feet of them? We could, you know, and, and, and you, listener, think about the menu of options, right? One is the good old fashioned way. You get them on the telephone and you say, who was sitting next to you? And you would rely on their imperfect memory. Zoom ahead to like the most foolproof and invasive version where we aim a camera at the students and we record where every single student sits and who they turn to during the break and whether or not they ever get within six feet. You can imagine this, you know, crazy artificial intelligence system where we measure the distance between faces and we determine how close you are. Um, You can imagine something that's probably a little less complete where um, we track Wi-Fi registrations. This was actually floated by someone. And you say, oh, at this time, there were 32 iPhones and 12 Android phones next to the access point that services this classroom. You could imagine we could ask students to register their their Wi-Fi cards on their smartphones so we could then build this out. The bottom line for all of this is COVID contact tracing requires a surveillance system of some kind. And so we decided, and I I drove a lot of this decision-making to try and do the least minimally invasive or the, sorry, the most minimally invasive um, surveillance system that would also enable decent contact tracing. So we did an opt-in system, a voluntary system where every seat would have a QR code 
you would, you know, snap a picture of it on your smartphone. It would send you to a form. You would put in your name, and 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 somewhere in our cloud would be registered that Panyagupta at this date at this time sat at this seat, and that's all it would say. It wouldn't get a picture of your face. It wouldn't even show when you left because we're not asking students to do it on departure. And it would give our contact tracing, I think, a happy medium between the old-fashioned who was sitting next to you and the fully surveillant, let's look at your picture. Um, It's not perfect, right? Students forget to do it It, because I don't know when you left. You know, um, it's it's a little imperfect. It certainly doesn't let me know if you got too close to someone during a break. I'm really glad with this choice. I think it strikes a nice balance. I think there's partly like an old school aesthetic benefit that it, there's this constant reminder that we're all in this together. Um, and so, you know, th- that that value is served instead of us just watching you. Um, and I'm sure there are some critics who think this is a lot of labor and it's not even a perfect contact tracing system. I didn't want to build a perfect contact tracing system because I didn't want to build a perfect surveillance system. Here's one other benefit. Think about when the pandemic ends, right? So imagine we had built the Wi-Fi tracking system for smartphones that some people had pitched to me. Guess what would have happened when the pandemic ended? Someone would say, well, we already have that software running and we already have it in the system. Why don't we use it to take attendance? Or why don't we use it to detect um, you know, intruders in the building? That's the problem with baking technologies of surveillance they're always done for a really good reason and they're never dismantled. And as soon as, uh, you know, the, the emergency ends, creative and hardworking people will use it to solve other problems. And half those problems will think are amazing and laudable and isn't the world better because of them. And half those will be problematic and concerning and lead to bad places. And then once in a blue moon, they'll come up with a use that's just evil. That's just downright pernicious, right? They'll use it to, I don't know, track, um, you know, uh, people on police watch lists. Who knows what they would do next? And, you know, I characterize that as evil. Maybe some listeners are thinking that'd be great. But a QR code can't be abused in that way. A QR code, I mean, when we're done, is just going to be this funny sticker on desks. And my guess is we won't be very good about cleaning them off. And so there'll be this like sticky residue of a QR code. And that's it, right? There's no inherent temptation to bring in mission creep to use the surveillance system for some other purpose. It's narrowly tailored to the job at hand. And so that makes it worth all of the trade-offs about what it can't do. And that seems to relate to your mantra of how technology follows policy. Technology doesn't dictate policy, whereas a secondary use or mission creep of a surveillance system might result in existing technology changing policies around, like the example you used, attendance. Yeah, absolutely, right? You could imagine that, uh, okay, so step one would be COVID contact tracing. Step two would be, oh, this is really interesting. Professors who want can use this for attendance. I've been an administrator so long, I'm actually picturing the email I would write to the professors. Dear professors, we have this wonderful new capability. Do you hate taking attendance? We know you do. Now you just go to this friendly app and you can find out which of your students were there. So that's step two. Step three is, wow, look how many students are skipping class. That's really problematic. <laughs> you know what step four would be? God, I'm, I'm turning this into a sci-fi novel. Step four would be during our next ABA accreditation review, someone would say, 
oh, it's bad that we know that there's so many students skipping classes. This, this threatens our accreditation, which is often what someone with an ulterior motive will say in a law school administration. So what's step five? Step five would be the worst email we send to all students. Dear students, we have now put in place a mandatory attendance policy that is being tracked by technology. From now on, you will get an email every time you've missed a class twice. After three times, if you don't have an explanation, you'll be withdrawn from the class, right? I mean, that's not crazy or implausible. And you could imagine if your response is, no, 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 good, good um, will, you know, professors of goodwill and students of goodwill would, would rise up and advocate against it and fight it and kill it. And you know what? You're probably right. But think about all the energy that would require. Think about how that would distract us from the other things we need to do as a community. So, and think about if they were wrong and you, and you lost that future battle. So I'm glad, boy, I didn't even think it through before this conversation. I'm glad that the QR codes are the reason three years from now, we don't have to fight over a mandatory technologically abetted uh, attendance system. Uh, I'm going to sleep better at night tonight, just, just realizing that that's one of the futures that I've helped foreclose, at least for now, right? Who knows what they're going to do next year. But, but for now, I, I feel safe in, uh, in thinking that we dodged a bullet here. Yeah, the academic version of Black Mirror, it seems. <laughs> yeah, Black Mirror has destroyed being a tech scholar because they're so good at doing what we're supposed to do that it makes all of our uh, our stuff seem secondary and, and ham-handed compared to them. Anyway. The other example that I was curious about, and I know lots of lots of students are curious about, is the chat functionality in online classes and in Zoom. Can you talk about your thinking and general thinking about that? Yeah. And the reason, the reason I love talking about this example is up until now, we've just been talking about surveillance and surveillance brings a lot of kind of pros and cons to bear. And and we know, we know what that debate looks like. The chat functionality is about a very different bucket of issues. I mean, one thing I want to introduce in this conversation is, you know, technology is all about, um, or, or technology should be about thinking about how it enables certain human values and discourages other human values, right? And there's lots of human values we could talk about, right? It could be equity, fairness, um, efficiency. There's lots of things that we as humans want and technology makes these things easier or harder, just like my example about um, attendance policies and surveillance cameras. Um, and and so why I like the chat example is it's not about surveillance. It's about um, it's about community. It's about pedagogy. It's about um, social isolation. So here's here's the issue. So Zoom has um, a fine grained set of chat functions, uh, and you've all seen them. You've all been in a chat room where you can I'm sorry in a Zoom room where you can chat with everyone else. Zoom lets the administrator, which sometimes means the professor, sometimes means us set the policy for their session. Um, and the choice is really, uh, I think there's there's three choices, which is um, everyone in the class can chat with um, the entire class. Everyone in the class can chat only with the professor. Everyone in the class can chat privately with another member of the class. Those are the three choices you get to set. Um, and so I had an earlier conversation with the the professors, I said, I need to set the default setting. What should the default setting be? And, you know, I'm going to share the, you know, 
private things said by professors in meetings, but I'm not going to identify any names. There was a non-trivial number of professors who said, I don't want the chat in my class. Um, it's a distraction. It's not consistent with my pedagogical goals. You know, it, it, it's just not something I want to keep track of. There's too many moving parts in online teaching. And I am totally sympathetic to all of that. I think whether or not you enable chat is should be an individual choice by the professors. But there were two complications that caused me a lot of anxiety, and I'm not even sure we, we've landed on the, on the right one. All right, here's the first one. It gets a little in the weeds. Zoom um, allows you, as the host of a room, um, to turn... I, I'm sorry, I'm doing this slowly because I'm trying to remember all the details myself. But Zoom allows you, as the host of the room, to let everyone talk to everyone or to let everyone talk privately to one another. But Zoom doesn't let you make that latter choice during the class. You actually have to set it for all classes ahead of time, if that makes sense. So someone has to log into the Zoom server and say, this classroom allows private chat. And what we realized and was, yeah, go ahead. Can I clarify, Does that is that a permanent decision for the entire semester or can that change at any point? Um, later on too. Yeah, I have class. To confess, I, I, before this conversation, I should have looked into the details because, because there's an important detail that's escaping me at this moment. Um, and so I'm trying to think of a more general way I can frame it to still get the point across, right? So there were some things that Zoom required us to set once for the class as a default for all classes. And once we set it, professors couldn't easily change it on the fly. And so one of those things was private chat. That private chat turned out to be something that was really, really, really hard to let professors turn on and off on their own. I had to make the choice for all classes. And it flows to an earlier part of this conversation, which is if I let every professor use their own Zoom ID, they could do whatever they wanted. But we decided not to do that because of our Panopto recording system. We had to centralize some of the control. And in this case, it took away flexibility. And so although I've kind of butchered the details, the takeaway was I couldn't allow private chat in classes, even for professors who wanted it, without allowing it for all classes. And so there were a couple vocal professors who said vehemently and passionately, I cannot have private chat going on in my class. And what I want to tell the listener is, you probably have an opinion about this one way or the other, and you probably feel pretty strongly about it, but I want you to understand that there was someone who had the opposite opinion from you. And so it was left to me as the decision maker to balance competing interests and more importantly, like deeply felt, emotionally felt competing interests. So let me just frame some of them for you. So why would a professor, and again, I don't want you to be too judgmental, whether you agree or disagree with these, you should have your own opinion, but why would a professor want to prohibit private chat in a classroom? So there's many answers. One is it's just distracting, says some professors. It just is one more thing my students you know, will be doing instead of focusing on the conversation. Number two is um, it opens the door to harassment that you know some obnoxious student is going to use it to send something vile to another student. And the professor kind of sees their role as uh, the person in charge of the discourse in their classroom. 
and it bothers them that they might be in some way responsible for abetting harassment that they're going to have trouble detecting, which would also mean like, do we send these people to student discipline, et cetera? These all sound very paternalistic, of course. Um, Number three, I think some professors, although they didn't say it this way, didn't like the thought that the students would be talking about them, right? Um, And so for all of these reasons, and probably more, I'm probably not being super charitable to this argument, professors, some of them vehemently said, you cannot allow there to be any private chat in my classroom. And because of Zoom's choices and because of our choices, that's stuck for all professors. But let's take the student point of view. What we heard from students passionately, not a lot of them, but a few was, I'm brand new to Georgetown, right? I am, you know, I've never been here before. I don't know a single soul yet. So this was especially stark in the beginning of the fall semester. What I would love more than anything is if I could follow up a student comment by saying, I totally love what you just said. I don't know what your email address is because it's hard to take the little snippet on your Zoom screen and figure out your email address. Um, And by the way, it might just be creepy if I send you an email saying, here's something about what you said in class, but it'd be more organic. It'd be interesting for me to say, can we chat for 15 minutes this afternoon about that amazing comment you just made? Maybe that's how I find a study group. Maybe that's how I find a friend. To me, the analogy I kept making is, uh, you know, the five minutes before your first law school class, most of us probably turned to the person next to you and said, what do you think about law school so far? And in a non-trivial number of cases, that person became a friend, a study group partner. We can't do that in Zoom, right? Zoom doesn't allow side conversations. And so I felt so much for students who uh, expressed this opinion. This happened to be at the same time that we were worried a lot about student isolation and student wellness from Zoom and from Zoom fatigue. And on more than one occasion, I almost overrode the professors and flipped that switch and said, we are now a school that has private chat in all classes, but I couldn't get myself to it for complicated reasons of governance, you know, um, political will, picking fights, um, being distracted by a thousand other emergencies. But to this day, I'm not sure we made the right choice. So for those who don't aren't at Georgetown, we don't allow private chat in our classes. And I regret that sometimes. I, w- I wonder if I could have improved the lives of, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of law students in some small way. I'm not, I, I don't think this would have revolutionized anything if we had enabled private chat. And so I'm just fascinated by the, by the way technology both enabled this, but also foreclosed and dictated the end result. So. It's so interesting to hear the background thought process that goes through these decisions. And I'm curious how you're thinking both during that decision-making process and now that you've seen um, how it's played out, both in terms of chat and you know other technology considerations, QR codes, Panopto, et cetera, have impacted your wider thoughts on use of technology in society and how how reliant we are on it. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I, I'm thinking a lot about how I um, how I use the lessons of the last three years to enrich my scholarship. And, and I'm, you know, I, I think a lot of these are old ideas I have, but I've modified them or I'm, I'm going to kind of double down on things I've said in the past. So let me just kind of ramble on a few of them. One is this mantra we started with, right? Technology shouldn't dictate policy. Policy should dictate technology. Well, this chat example is a great example of when that falls apart, right? 
Zoom made some choices about their defaults and we made some choices about recording that foreclosed the best solution. The best solution to the chat debate would have been by default, it's turned off. So professors who don't want it don't have to think about it, but a professor with two clicks could turn it on. That choice wasn't available to me. Um, and I know there's probably some Zoom experts out there saying, no, no, you could have done that, but we couldn't have done it within the constraints of our other technological choices. Trust me, I looked into it. Um, and that's frustrating to me, right? I wish I could wave a magic wand and get Zoom to change 16 lines of code to give us the option we didn't have. Um, but I can't do that. I don't have that power. Zoom has its own uh, concerns and incentives. Not that I asked Zoom. I didn't ask Zoom because I just assumed I would be ignored. And so that's why I had that caveat in my mantra, mantra, except when it doesn't. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, and this is, this is I think, um, this is something that's a little abstract. So there were moments when design choices we made, like the QR codes, for um, for good purposes, to forestall bad purposes, meant there was something clunky about our solution. There was something inefficient about our solution, that our solution was full of friction, right? I'm using that word because Silicon Valley always talks about a frictionless model and how their, their job is to find all the rough edges in technology and sand them off so everything is seamless. So you're just like luxuriating in eight hours of Netflix because you didn't even realize the time was going by. One thing I've been saying in my scholarship for a few years, and now I'm going to double down on it, is we have to realize that friction is where we preserve human values, friction and technology, that, that we should sometimes force our technology to be imperfect and clunky and odd and unhelpful. And when we get frustrated by those moments of friction, we need to, this is going to sound very new age, we need to be, take a moment to be mindful of where that friction comes from and all of the other amazing things it's doing for us. We need to like sit back and appreciate and embrace the friction. I don't think that's usually what happens. Usually in tech companies, I've never worked for a tech company, but let me just pretend like I have. Usually in tech companies, points of friction are seen as the enemy, the thing to get rid of. And if you're someone who is encountering friction, it's almost like an embarrassment. You're almost you're almost supposed to say, oh, it's too bad our users weren't able to do X. I've been encouraging my staff to, to instead embrace the friction, to say, yeah, you know what? You can't do this thing you want to do easily. And it's because we don't want to create a surveillance state, right? Because it's always, mission creep always happens with the best of intentions. The thing that cracks open the door to mission creep is something that we all would agree is just an amazing, amazing um, feature. And so it's too easy to get wrapped up in that and say, well, you know, I recognize that this might open the door to problems, but how can we stand in the way of X? X is amazing. And I think we're really seeing the issue of friction and technology usage in current events. Facebook allowed for greater and global connectedness, but that was truly for better and for worse, as we're seeing now with the role of social media in organizing the January 6th insurrection. I wonder if technology companies ever contemplated the potential for negative consequences from their innovations. Did they ever wonder how the potential of technology could be harmful? Or was that kind of ignored or muffled under technology optimism? I wonder if Facebook did that early in its conception. Now, there's no reason to think Mark Zuckerberg with his... Uh, 
weird pathologies would have done this. But what if Zuckerberg in his Harvard dorm room said, you know what? Someday people might storm the Capitol building in a attempt to overthrow the American government because of this design choice I just baked into Facebook. As implausible as that sounds, that's what I think is missing in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley, I, you brought up Black Mirror earlier. Silicon Valley needs to embrace the Black Mirror thinking of the worst case scenarios instead of thinking their job is to search and destroy every moment of friction. Uh, and that's one of the things I think I learned as Associate Dean. You can do that. You can learn to celebrate rather than regret the friction, but it doesn't come second nature. That's kind of the work of a lawyer, too, to anticipate, think about corner cases, worst case scenarios, build them into a general law or a general policy. And then inevitably, more corner cases will arise because that's what human nature is, yeah. you know, unpredictability and uncertainty that we just have to work with. And then the hard cases, the really hard cases end up in court. Yeah, that's a really, really apt analogy. Um, I mean, I think I think one thing I would say, though, is we often use the, the terminology and framework of costs and benefits to do what you were just talking about. And to me, those words are a trap. They're like an intellectual framework that leads us to trouble. I think the point I'm trying to make are costs are benefits and benefits are costs. Um, and that that we should, you know, law is all about the scales, right? Is is this where, and, and that's to me is the mistake. To me, it's when, especially when you're building technological platforms, you can't, you can't, it's not this kind of, you know, how can I have all, as many benefits as possible with as few as co- costs as possible? Um, I think what I'm trying to argue for is, you know, we, we think of laws and legal systems uh, and statutes as as having like infinite complexity where we route around the good stuff and the bad stuff and we have this perfect line. And I think that what we have to embrace more often with technology is like clean, bright lines are better. And, and this shows up in other areas of law and that we need to have things that have false positives, false negatives, you know, benefits foregone and costs that we have to eat. Because there's something about drawing these clear, straight lines uh, that give us all sorts of other benefits. I think we're at time now, but thank you so much for a fascinating discussion, Dino. It's fascinating how much overlap there is between thinking that goes into technology and thinking that goes into the work of a lawyer and how much that overlap is being underutilized, honestly, in both professions and both fields. Uh, no, you're very welcome. I enjoyed this conversation. I think I'm going to keep this podcast and use it to like write the introduction to my next article. So thank you for that. And congratulations. I mean, it's great that the Georgetown Law students, I just love our students in so many ways, but the, the thought that you're creating an entire podcast and getting it off the ground is great. Uh, so best wishes. And I will definitely subscribe to you in my podcast feed uh, as soon as I can. Fantastic. Awesome. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you again, Dean Ohm, for joining us today on Between Two Codes. And thank you all for listening to another episode. Please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else fine podcasts are served. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Between Two Codes, and stay tuned for our next episodes.